Welcome to episode number 150 of Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage, I confess, I forgot it was the 150th episode. Uh, You're always forgetting our anniversary. I want to tell you about a pet peeve of mine as we enter week six, is it? Seven of quarantine? I I think it's more like week 50 or 60. Something I hate is hearing about how celebrities are coping during the pandemic. Uh, I feel like I see this all the time, whether it's, you know, Ellen DeGeneres sitting in the yard of her Palace of Versailles estate. Nancy Pelosi in front of two, like, $15,000 refrigerators. Or just, you know, any any actor, anybody who can afford to take a year off, who has some little project that they're doing during this. Uh, I, I don't want to hear about it. And, and I'm sorry, maybe that makes me a bad person. No, you know, I, I, I hate that too. And you know what's so funny about those clients? clips they're usually like clips or you know news articles you know what's so funny about that type of content is that i feel like the subtext is supposed to be hey we're all in this together the celebs are inconvenienced too and it's like that stuff literally says the opposite of that we're not all in this together some people still have to work some people do not get to enjoy quarantine uh on palatial like country estates you know, where they're probably still being waited on. They have a pool to swim in. They have like a home gym uh, and they have like some massive, you know, home theater or something. That is not the experience of quarantine for most people. A couple of days ago, I saw Academy Award winning filmmaker Guillermo del Toro leading this big tweet thread where it was him and a bunch of big name directors, you know, his director friends talking about the movies they're watching during the pandemic and whatever fine i guess it's fairly innocent but i also hate it because it's just this thing foisted in my face reminding me that oh yeah they can take a year off and just watch movies all day and then i saw people like sharing this tweet thread being like this is such a testament to the the power of art to carry us through this crisis (laughs) and it's like fuck the, the power of art isn't doing anything to carry me through this crisis (laughs) <laughs> I think for most people, it's more like the power of Netflix. And most of that is not is not art. I guess the power of Netflix is there to pass the evening hours, but it's not exactly carrying me through the crisis uh, spiritually or financially. Well, my girlfriend is stuck at her parents' house uh, for the foreseeable future. And uh, I, I'm pretty much in total seclusion, but I am combating the cabin fever by becoming more and more like Patrick Bateman every day with, you know, morning calisthenics workouts, a skincare regimen, all the, all that kind of stuff, being even more neurotic about, you know, weighing my food and uh, <laughs> nutrition and vitamin supplementation. So I'm going to be a Superman by the time this thing is through. Right. So when it's all over and everybody else looks like the humans from WALL-E, you're going to barge out there, you know, hit the ground running. But of course, by then, once we're all out of it, traditional beauty standards will no longer be applicable. Our perception of what is attractive will have changed because everybody will look like a beanbag chair. It'll be no country for old men. (laughs) It occurred to me that nobody's having sex anymore. I mean, it's possible that like we'll just go for two years with like no children being born uh, with, with no new relationships being formed. But, you know, there have been a lot of columnists who for years have been calling for the end of hookup culture. And uh, we've finally done it. We finally eradicated the scourge. You want me to go to Las Vegas at once. Make contact with a Portuguese photographer on the server. As your attorney, I advise you to rent a very fast car with no top. Hey, 
ready for that? Checking into a Vegas hotel under a phony name with intent to commit capital fraud and a head full of acid. <laughs> I sure hope so. So, folks, um, after a run of real movies and I guess more cerebral material, I believe last week's episode was about Weimar Cinema and the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. This week, we're getting back to the basics. And our movie, I think, really hits the sweet spot for our show and its original mission statement, which OG fans from back in season one will remember was more or less to review things we encountered in our youth, or at any rate, uh, which were around, you know, in our early teens around then, and to find fault with them or maybe find fault with how we ourselves received them at the time. And this week's movie is almost perfect because it's from a director that we both love, Terry Gilliam. It's based Although I have my doubts now. <laughs> it's based it's based on a book we love, uh, which is the Hunter S. Thompson novel Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. The kink in this, uh, at least as our original mission statement is concerned, is that neither of us really liked this movie 10 or 15 years ago. And I think uh, the consensus, just from our, uh, our, our pre-mics being on banter, is that our teenage selves were actually on point for once, uh, because this movie sucks. Yeah, it's so refreshing. I mean, there are just so many opinions that I've changed over the years, so many ways I've grown and evolved. And it's nice to just have this one constant, you know? <laughs> if you want a solid visual adaptation uh, of Hunter S. Thompson's classic gonzo novel, I'm just going to say right from the get-go, uh, this film isn't for you. But if you are the kind of person who, I don't know, likes to watch Benicio Del Toro violently puking uh, or flailing around in a bathtub as a kind of, you know, 60s revivalist soundtrack plays, well, folks, have we got a film for you. <laughs> I want to ask you a bit about your relationship with this book, because I have a long relationship with Hunter S. Thompson and Fear and Loathing. I first read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas when I was in grade nine. I got it from the school library, and I don't think it's too much of an overstatement to say that it was life-changing. I grew up aware of it because it felt like a very dangerous book. Drugs are evil, of course, and so <laughs> there definitely felt something exciting and transgressive about reading something with this subject matter. One of Thompson's agendas is to talk about the death of hope, you know, the end of the 60s and this spirit that was eradicated with the coming of Nixon. I wouldn't say that resonated so strongly with me in grade nine, but as somebody who even at that age fancied myself a writer, it was very exciting to me what this represented for journalism. You know, I was very excited by people like him and then later on, Tom Wolfe or Gay Talese or those other new journalists, the people who made the process part of the story and who made themselves part of the story, because of course that flatters the ego to think that you can do that. Um, and also, I think when you're at a certain age, you're very excited by the idea of something that calls attention to its own artifice or an artwork that calls attention to the fact that it is an artwork or a piece of journalism that calls attention to the fact that it's journalism. It's like there's no such thing as objective truth in journalism. And I know that and Hunter S. Thompson knows that because we're both smart guys. So for those reasons and others, including the sort of ferocity of Thompson's prose, I went through a long period of being a really diehard Hunter S. Thompson fan, which has 
sort of waxed and waned and fluctuated in the years since then. How about yourself? So I, I have a, a somewhat different relationship to the book. I think if I had encountered it at, uh, it at 14 or 15, I might have found its vision a little too cynical because at that age, I was really into all the 60s stuff just in a very uncomplicated way. I remember watching, you know, the Woodstock documentary, Really buying into, I guess, the most sympathetic version of the 60s, you know, hippie culture. And this book, which is sort of about the death of that culture, the death of uh, what it supposedly represented, I think would have kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I encountered it a little bit later. At that stage in my life, I didn't really have any identity as a writer or somebody who wanted to be a journalist or anything like that. So I I identified with it on a different level, which which was as a kind of uh, exciting prose experiment. Because as a teenager, I was really attracted to poetry and to prose uh, that kind of bent the form. So I loved E.E. E. Cummings, for example. I love I loved Jack Kerouac, and we should. I was thinking uh, we should do a some kind of a Kerouac episode at some point. I was checking to see if there was a film adaptation of On the Road, and it looks like there's a 2012 one that does not sound very good. Um, we we should just like find a time to reread it and just talk about the book. But um, yeah, that'd be um, great. But I was super into Kerouac, and uh, I think. To some extent, even more so than On the Road, I really liked his stranger, less well-known prose experiments, books like The Subterraneans, things like that. And so that's kind of how I approached this, less as a political work and more as just an exciting piece of prose. At the time, I wasn't even aware that he'd written Fear and Loathing on the campaign trail, which... I don't know how I would have received that as a as a you know in my late teens, but I suspect I would have liked it a lot. And now that I'm older and a bit more immersed in the actual craft of writing, I also enjoy tremendously writing and journalism that kind of breaks the form, breaks the artifice, or makes it part of the overall enterprise. Matt Taibbi, who's you know a writer that I uh, admire a great deal and who's a well-known admirer of Thompson, his 2004 campaign memoir that we've talked about on the show before, Spanking the Donkey, it kind of does exactly that. He's assigned to cover this campaign and he ends up writing a book that's more about, it's kind of a meta commentary that, that breaks the fourth wall of campaign journalism and is about the act of doing campaign journalism. So revisiting this book, uh, which I did uh, alongside watching the movie this week, I found myself uh, just appreciating it uh, even more. Thompson inspired an awful lot of bad imitators, including uh, probably myself in my younger years. Oh, yeah, actually, I mean, I should say that one of the reasons why I think I liked Kerouac, E. Cummings, William S. Burroughs, various beat poets uh, when I was a teenager is because they sort of gave you the freedom to be a bad writer and pretend that it was good. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. I, I somewhere, uh, probably not even on my shelf, probably, you know, when you have a book you're kind of embarrassed about and you hide it behind another row of books. Somewhere in my apartment, I have the prose and poetry collection I published for my grade 12 creative writing class, and it had all kinds of stuff that was, you know, horribly derivative of uh, Hunter S. Thompson and uh, Kerouac and and E. Cummings. Just, hey, if I throw a bunch of words on the page and arrange them in a silly way, that's that's art. And it's great because it saved me having to develop ideas or think about structure. You know, to be a good journalist, you've actually got to be interested in people and things. You've got to have a certain amount of curiosity and empathy. 
And I think, and I'm not blaming Thompson for this, but I think Thompson's writing inspired plenty of people, uh, including potentially even me, who had only limited interest in other people and things, to kind of go hog wild and like make it an egotistical writing exercise, you know, to make it all about, hey, I'm on the campaign bus. I also think the new journalists inspired a lot of writing, like, for example, that David Foster Wallace essay about John McCain, where it becomes so preoccupied with, here I'm on the campaign bus, and here are all the things that happen on the campaign bus, here's all the stuff that's happening behind the scenes, what's real, you know, what isn't, like, a lot of stuff like that that takes it as a given that, say, the artifice of politics, the game behind politics, is interesting. We should actually do, we should do a bonus episode on that essay, because that's a case study in something that I thought was incredibly deep in about 2008, uh, and now is just... (laughs) But so let's talk a bit more about Thompson's style and about gonzo journalism, because it's something that's very easy to copy and I think very difficult to do well. And for those unfamiliar, I guess we've kind of assumed hitherto that people have maybe read this book or at least familiar with it. Uh, If you haven't, it's a it's a pretty short read and it's uh, it's a lot of fun. But, you know, essentially Thompson's style is to blend fact and fiction and or to uh, put another way to kind of exaggerate reality, maybe 10 or 15 percent in order to create this kind of hyper realism, because an exaggerated version of reality that brings out its more vulgar and base aspects is often a more realistic depiction of reality than reality itself uh, can provide or that a literal description of things can provide. This was very controversial in my history of journalism class at journalism school. Why was that? Because so much of that goes against certain principles that a lot of people hold around journalism, that it's kind of, you know, just the facts, ma'am, that it's objective reporting. And like when it's 10 or 15% exaggerated, like how do you regulate that, you know? I think that was the tone of the sorts of conversations we had at journalism school about this. How is that allowed in the rule books, you know? Yeah, I mean, I have to say that sounds a little bit trite and kind of teacher's mm-hmm. petty uh, to me. <laughs> um, I mean, If there was a scourge of like local newspapers where all the reporters who were covering City Hall wrote like Hunter S. Thompson, I might be a little more sympathetic to that. (laughs) Um, Like if if you couldn't read about the subcommittee on, you know, water and utilities, you know, if you couldn't read the minutes from the meeting without a bunch of references to mescaline or whatever, (laughs) I would be a little more sympathetic to that. But I I think it's clear to anybody who picks up uh, a book like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas that it is not a literal description of what's happening. Happening. And actually, one of the interesting things about reading it is kind of dwelling on to what extent or in what way did these events actually take place? I mean, there are obvious things about Thompson's style, which, you know, he himself you know, said openly were just kind of contrivances. So, for example, in the very loose plot of this book, he's assigned to cover a road race of some kind. You know, in the book, the time frame surrounding the race is compressed. And in real life, I think he, you know, made two separate visits to one of the locations or something with, you know, either days or months apart. So there are things like that that are obvious, but it gets a little more difficult to interpret where, you know, reality ends and and fantasy or hyper reality begins when you get these descriptions of, you know, acid trips and, and things like that. 24 hours ago, we were sitting in the Pogo Lounge at the Beverly Heights Hotel in the patio section, of course. Drinking Singapore slings with mezcal on the side. Hiding from the brutish realities of this foul year of our Lord, 1971. 
And I should say that, you know, Thompson was uh, pretty open about his style. He later called the book a failed experiment in gonzo journalism, which is, is interesting that he thought, of, uh, thought it was a failure. I'd be interested to know why that was. But gonzo journalism for him was based on an idea coined by William Faulkner that, quote, the best fiction is far more true than any kind of journalism and the best journalists have always known this. So I think that gets it at kind of uh, the hyper realism of the book and how sometimes exaggerating things, it's about more than simply dramatic effect. It can actually draw them to your attention with greater accuracy and verisimilitude than if you just kind of reported on them in kind of cold and descriptive prose. The loose plot of the book and film involve two characters, one of whom is Thompson's, I guess you might say, surrogate, although it is more or less literally Thompson, named Raoul Duke, and his attorney, Dr. Gonzo, who in real life was Oscar Zeta Acosta. It takes place in 1971 as these two men go to the Nevada desert so Raoul Duke slash Thompson can cover this race. Uh, They've got a gigantic suitcase full of drugs. The book opens with the iconic lines, we were somewhere around Barstow on the edge of the desert when the drugs began to take hold. And with Thompson hallucinating bats. And when they get to their hotel, they start hallucinating that everybody at the hotel are lizards. It's an episodic plot from that point forward with Las Vegas representing, uh, it sounds hacky to say, but Las Vegas representing this like collapse of the American dream. There are vignettes where, for example, they walk into this convention of police officers or there are various colorful characters they encounter along the way. And throughout the process, Thompson is trying to work through his feelings of uh, what happened to America, the America he hoped for and loved, while also ingesting enormous amounts of drugs. So the plot, uh, such as it is, is not very well structured and, and intentionally so. And this is not a problem for the book because it doesn't undermine what the book is doing at all. The book is much more of a kind of sensory overload that's carried through, you know, on the strength of Thompson's prose. But when it comes to the movie, uh, it really ends up producing just a chaotic mess. We've watched a lot of films that don't work for the show. In a lot of cases, though, those have been kind of lower rent ones by kind of amateur directors or at least people not as well established or well respected as the great Terry Gilliam. Um, But this movie is actually kind of a chore to sit through. It has sort of one modality the whole way through. Um, I think it's trying to be funny, although that's kind of a strange thing to confront when you consider how unfunny it is. There's not a single actually funny moment in the film It's just, you know, Benicio Del Toro and Johnny Depp screaming and doing drugs and hallucinating and and that's it. That's that's the movie. My line on the movie used to be that I thought that any random 10 minutes of it are brilliant, but when you put it all together, it becomes indigestible. Uh, Unfortunately, on this viewing, I don't actually even think any random 10 minutes are good. Gilliam is or was or can be a great visual stylist. And, you know, he he sure knows how to pack the frame. So the images of this film are just full of stuff and full of color and full of ostentatious camera moves. And maybe for the for a little while, you're kind of bowled over by just the sheer force of it. But if he's a great visual stylist, he's never really been anything else. His filmography, I think, has a paucity of ideas. There are not a lot of ideas behind the images in this movie. It, it's 
basically the same kind of eyesore of an image over and over and over again. Pink wallpaper and vomit and a shaking camera. Yeah, and the way that he chose to kind of interpret the film, I mean, as we've said in the novel... Um, you know, it's not always clear how much is is factual or how much is even real or how much is an exaggeration of reality. But the film basically chooses to represent everything as just a sort of literal drug trip. And the scene where this really came through for me was the one at the convention on marijuana, which is taken straight out of the book, where you have this doctor on stage. So in the book, this is one Dr. E.R. Bloomquist, M.D. Um, and it's a really, really funny seen as it's described in the book, because it's clearly an exaggeration of what's happening or what Thompson witnessed, but also clearly an actually accurate depiction of just how dumb this conference on the dangers of drugs really is. And in the movie, they're just in the audience being like, what the fuck is this guy saying? And they're on drugs. In the book, the effect is completely different. And I just want to read a little bit from this scene to show you what I mean. Gosh darn that fiendish LSD. Dr. E.R. Bloomquist, MD, was the keynote speaker, one of the big stars of the conference. He is the author of a paperback book titled Marijuana, which according to its cover, tells it like it is. He's also (laughs) the inventor of the roach slash cockroach theory. According to the book jacket, he is an associate clinical professor of surgery and esthetology at the University of Southern California School of Medicine and also a well-known authority on the abuse of dangerous drugs. Dr. Gloomquist, quote, has appeared on national network television panels, has served as a consultant for government agencies, was a member of the Committee on Narcotics Addiction and Alcoholism of the Council on Mental Health of the American Medical Association. His wisdom is massively reprinted and distributed, says the publisher. He is clearly one of the heavies on that circuit of second-rate academic hustlers who get paid anywhere from $500 to $1,000 a hit for lecturing to cop crowds. Dr. Bloomquist's book is a compendium of state bullshit. On page 49, he explains the, quote, four states of being in the cannabis society. Cool, groovy, hip, and square, in that descending order. The square is seldom if ever cool, says Bloomquist. He is not with it. That is, he doesn't know what's happening. But if he manages to figure it out, he moves up a notch to hip. And if he can bring himself to approve of what's happening, he becomes groovy. And after that, with much luck and perseverance, he can rise to the rank of cool. Bloomquist writes like somebody who once bearded Tim Leary in a campus cocktail lounge and paid for all the drinks. And it was probably somebody like Leary who told him with a straight face that sunglasses are known in the drug culture as tea shades. Yeah, and in the movie, this scene is depicted from Thompson's very druggy eye view, and the character is played by Michael Jeter as if a gargoyle. You see him on the stage, and he's saying those words like he's in on the joke, you know? It's not nearly as funny as it would be if it were just a regular cop saying these things in a deadpan way. That's right. And if you consider that passage I just read, I mean, Thompson knows and the reader knows that an MD didn't literally publish a book that was like the four states of being and drug culture, where there are these like clinical definitions of being hip and groovy <laughs> and stoned and whatever. What's effective about the passage and what's entertaining and funny about it is the idea that this, you know, figure of authority, this kind of grifting TV doctor would taxonomize hippie culture or drug culture in that way. That's 
that's incredibly funny. But the poetry of that is completely destroyed in the movie where it's just Benicio Del Toro and Johnny Depp freaking out as they watch this guy deliver those lines in a way that suggests, as you just said, that he's in on the joke. Yeah, when you read Thompson's account, there's an element of ambiguity. You're wondering how much of it's true, to what extent it's true, whether it's hyperbole or delusion. And I think you're also given the space to have your own interpretation of what you're reading. There's a scene in the book and the movie where they go see a Debbie Reynolds concert. Debbie Reynolds being used as this symbol of a certain kind of establishment entertainment. They go into the concert and in the book, you know, they they freak out and they're thrown out. And when it's not presented with blunt literalism on the screen, it's not 100% a heroic moment. Because Thompson is writing this from a state of sobriety and because we're reading it from a state of sobriety, we can look at this absurd behavior and see what's insane and absurd about it, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, and there's really none of that in the movie. It's just this same note over and over and over again. And in fact, I found myself resenting the movie because I think it's much more simple-minded than the book is. I think Gilliam basically takes these two guys as these anti-authoritarian heroes, or as as simply anti-authoritarian heroes. I think we're invited to look at these guys and cheer them on as they're thumbing their nose at all the phonies in Las Vegas. All the losers, all the conformists who are gathering around these craps tables. I'm not saying the book doesn't do this. I just think the book is a little bit more self-aware than that. I think the book is a little bit self-aware about the fact that, like, these guys are are ridiculous. So the film does incorporate various passages from the book, uh, which are, you know, spoken by Johnny Depp, who plays uh, Thompson in, uh, let's just say, a very Johnny Deppy type of way. But because everything is just sort of mashed together and chaotic, even the Thompson prose don't really work in the context of the film. The visual aids the film uh, accompanies them with actually undermine the effect and the meaning of the prose. And this includes what I think is probably one of the most famous passages from the book, sometimes referred to as the wave speech, which is probably the closest the book gets to a thesis statement uh, about the 1960s and about kind of its own uh, subject matter. And it is a truly great piece of prose, but the film accompanies it with this kind of stock footage of like people protesting and things like that. And it's, it is just a little bit too literal. It actually recalled for me another film that I saw probably around the same time I first saw this that had a very similar problem and is definitely in our wheelhouse, which is that uh, that musical Across the Universe. Oh, God, Did you ever yeah. See that? yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that that movie, um, you know, for those unfamiliar, it's kind of, a, it's kind of a, a movie framed around Beatles songs. And when I say framed around, I mean the things you see on screen are for the most part literal depictions of the lyrics of the songs in a way that actually destroys the poetry of the songs. So for example, I remember there's a vignette that involves I want you, she's so heavy. And as the line she's so heavy is playing, there's some like some Marines in Vietnam or something like carrying the Statue of Liberty because she because she's so heavy. You know, it's th- it's things like that. It uh, just completely ruins the actual poetry of the lyrics. You want to know something funny? This movie was originally supposed to be directed by Alex Cox who also directed Sid and Nancy and Repo Man. And he departed the project over creative differences with Hunter Thompson himself, because one of the things he wanted to do was literalize the wave speech as a cartoon, as a piece of animation with an actual wave in it, sweeping up 
you know, the the 60s. Well, I'm glad that they didn't do that for the film, but I'm not sure what they did was uh, was all that much better. Well, what they replaced uh, it with was very much boomer porn, you know, for a movie that fancies itself so transgressive. It, it's so it has such boomer energy to it, you know, <laughs> it, it reminded me of, you know, the opening of The Post where there's just Jefferson Airplane. <laughs> was it Fortunate Son is playing? Yeah. And there's just this kind of, this kind of footage of like generic. Hey, remember this from remember the six? 60s wasn't that that was cool you were you were there for that or you heard about this and man you know we we really stood for something meanwhile he's like standing there in a huge puddle of his own vomit and he's like (laughs) assaulting the maid and that's supposed to be like really funny when you see it in the movie (laughs) but sorry luke i know you've been trying to transition into the wave speech how about you read a little bit of tops and pros for us right now Strange memories on this nervous night in Las Vegas. Five years later, six, it seems like a lifetime, or at least a main era, the kind of peak that never comes again. San Francisco in the middle 60s was a very special time and place to be a part of. Maybe it meant something, maybe not in the long run. But no explanation, no mix of words or music or memories can touch that sense of knowing that you were there and alive in that corner of time in the world, whatever it meant. History is hard to know because of all the hired bullshit, but even without being sure of history, it seems entirely reasonable to think that every now and then the energy of a whole generation comes to a head in a long, fine flash for reasons that nobody really understands at the time and which never explain in retrospect what actually happened. My central memory of that time seems to hang on one or five or maybe 40 nights or very early mornings when I left the Fillmore half crazy and instead of going home, aimed a big 650 lightning across the Bay Bridge at 100 miles an hour wearing L.L. Bean shorts and a butt sheep herder's jacket, booming through the Treasure Island Tunnel at the lights of Oakland and Berkeley and Richmond, not sure which turnoff to take when I got to the other end. Always stalling at the toll gate, too twisted to find neutral, I fumbled for change. But being absolutely certain that no matter which way I went, I would come to a place where people were just as high and wild as I was. No doubt at all about that. There was madness in any direction, at any hour, if not across the bay and at the Golden Gate or down 101 to Los Altos or La Honda, you could strike sparks anywhere. There was a fantastic universal sense that whatever we were doing was right, that we were winning. And that, I think, was the handle, that sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any mean or military sense, we didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. There was no point in fighting on our side or theirs. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. With the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high watermark, that place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. I mean, that's obviously such great prose. It's it's so musical and, you know, to, to sound trite and hacky, it feels like going on a ride, like there's a momentum to it. I wonder from hearing it, what exactly is Thompson lamenting? What is he sad is gone aside from a particular kind of energy? Is he is he mourning a scene more than a particular set of ideals? It's very hard to tell because as evocative as that passage is, I'm not sure how editorial he's really being. 
But the sentiment he's conveying there is nevertheless one that I think a lot of people who lived through the 1960s and were immersed in the culture in one way or another really quite viscerally feel. I remember something my mom, who grew up in the 60s, said to me years and years ago about the 60s, which was that it felt like a unique moment in history if you were living through it. And it felt like there was this kind of wave of human goodness that was just going to kind of roll over everything. And actually recounting that, I'm realizing she used the same metaphor that Thompson did. But of course, Thompson is writing uh, in the early 70s, and he's already lamenting, you know, just five or six years later, Whatever it is, whatever that precious thing is gone. And I'm hesitant to read too much into specifically, you know, what Thompson means by this, because I'm not sure that it's exactly a coherent editorial statement, but it's certainly a very evocative one. I mean, what, what does the passage mean to you? I think it is evocative. I think it's more emotional than intellectual. And I think that its vagueness makes possible a movie like this, which I think kind of unambiguously celebrates Thompson as just kind of a as a performance artist, basically. Well, as a guy who partakes in the extremes of human behavior for their own sake. Not just for their own sake, but as kind of a lashing out at a world that has disappointed him. The movie appreciates him as a rebel without a cause, you know, a guy who's been disappointed by the world and, well, now he's going to go puke on on the fucking casino floor, you know? Yeah, and whatever Thompson's intentions uh, were, that really gets at the sort of double-edged sword of the 1960s, which on the one hand were, were actually this very radical time, probably the last moment. I mean, particularly in the recent American experience that felt truly revolutionary in in both a kind of cultural and a political sense. You had all that going on. But on the other hand, uh, having a complicated relationship with all that stuff was the birth of modern lifestyle politics or what we might call kind of culture as politics. Mm. You know, the kind of failure of the 1960s, in spite of all of the wonderful things that decade produced in art and in politics, is that the vision of the of the counterculture was so focused focused on kind of, uh, you know, the spiritual transformation of individuals. You know, there's the line in that Joni Mitchell song, you know, that Joni Mitchell song, Woodstock, where she says, I dreamed I saw the bombers riding shotgun in the sky. They were turning into butterflies over our nation. I've always found that such a, a powerful and also kind of a a complicated line because it is an anti-war statement, but it's also conveying something that was really inadequate about at least a part of the counterculture in the 60s, which was the idea that gatherings like Woodstock, you know, could be the start of a kind of civilizational shift away from war, away from poverty. And I think in retrospect, we can now understand that individual behavior and counterculture no matter how subversive or transgressive it is, isn't really politics. Something else that came to mind in thinking about all this, uh, which I have pretty complicated feelings about, is this interview that John Lennon and Yoko Ono had with this Vietnam journalist, uh, this photojournalist, and she's quite angry at them. It's kind of difficult to watch. She's angry at them because... She feels that they're basically telling people that you can all sit or, you know, sit around and and just be chill. And that's how you can make the war stop. And she says at one point to them, I I don't think that you understand the reality of what's what's actually going on. I I wish I remembered the journalist's name. And Lennon and Ono kind of defend themselves and are quite flustered by all of this. Uh, Again, it's, it's pretty difficult to watch. But I think that gets at how complex interpreting the 1960s is. You know, something I resent about this movie is that I don't sense a lot of empathy in it for anybody who's not 
Johnny Depp and Benicio del Toro. And I think I put a lot of the blame on Gilliam here, because if there are two ideas that recur throughout the Gilliam corpus, it's bureaucracy is bad, and uh, let's hear it for the dreamers, you know, the crazy ones. Uh, people people not unlike Terry Gilliam himself. This movie's really turned you against Terry Gilliam. It's uh, it's incredible. We should watch Brazil as a as a bomb for that because Brazil's great. I'm actually afraid to revisit Brazil now, and I'm I'm sure we will on this podcast at some point. But there's something in Gilliam's filmography that increasingly turns me off that I perceive as navel gazing or as self aggrandizement. He seems drawn to these figures who are, as I said, dreamers, people who are standing up uh, against, you know, the the man. Yeah, the man. Like, you know, he spent 30 years trying to make a Don Quixote movie, basically because he thinks he's Don Quixote and the, the movie studios are windmills. And I look at this movie and I think he identifies probably very strongly with the Johnny Depp character. And he sees everybody surrounding him, everybody else in the movie, as these pawns, these know-nothing idiots, these simpletons. And I don't know, Gilliam's is a perspective I think that I just increasingly find myself not not jiving with. I, I think it's simplistic and very kind of egotistical. Yeah, and if I can just beat this drum a little more, I mean, to go back to the, the 1960s for a second, I mean, I, I think one of its its worst and most insidious legacies was exactly the kind of idea that you just uh, associated with Terry Gilliam. The idea that this kind of uh, rebelliousness that's kind of abstract from any substance or broader, I don't know, kind of philosophical project is just inherently good for its own sake. In a weird way, the hippie counterculture or parts of it were appropriated not by Nixonism so much, but by Reaganism, by the kind of market zeitgeist that came 15 or so years later. I mean, after the 1960s, the dumbest shit imaginable could claim to be transcendent or represent a transcendent experience. And, you know, by the 1980s, when a lot of the hippies had grown up and gotten adult jobs, you know, marketing people had figured out that you could basically get them to buy stuff and have it still be rebellion. And it didn't matter how dumb the thing was, you could package it as a spiritual act, you know, (laughs) as the satisfaction of individual fulfillment um, and of a kind of life course that individuals were cultivating for themselves, uh, you know, regardless of when I, what anyone thought. You know, it's like conformity dressed up as non-conformity. And this is still with us these days. It's something you see in advertising all the time. When I was scrolling through clips on YouTube in preparation for this episode, I got hit with an ad for this like dark chocolate product that came in a bag. Okay, and the tagline was, we're not boxed in and neither are you. (laughs) Now, I assume that it was saying that like this dark chocolate doesn't come in a box. It comes in a bag. I think that's the that's the implication. But it also seems to be implying there's something kind of transcendent about this particular brand of, of dark chocolate or dark chocolate raisins or something. And in the ad, there's, you know, a photogenic woman and she's eating from the bag. And the dark chocolate doesn't come in squares. It comes in like these little like they look like chocolate raisins or something. They're all in different shapes, mm. you know, because every because every one of us is unique. <laughs> yes. And only a and only a unique person would ever purchase this particular brand of dark chocolate. Only the kind of person who's not, you know, a conformist and boxed in by conventional thinking mm. would purchase exactly this kind of <laughs> this kind of chocolate. So that's that's where this kind of bullshit ends up. 
Yes, the only did. reason, if I'm going to get on the front page, I might as well get on the front page with the word peace. But you've made yourself ridiculous. To some people, I don't care. If it, You're too good for If it what saves you're doing. lives. You don't think you. Oh, my dear boy, you're living in the nether nether. Well, uh, you talk to You the... don't think you saved a single life. Uh, well, maybe we'll, we'll save something in the future. Maybe next year we didn't, It didn't do a bit of use. No, it's still gone down, so it didn't do anything. But, I mean, you don't equate uh, the civil war that's look, going on in listen. Nigeria with that. And you... then talk about, well, this is my form of protest well, because look. people in anti-war campaigns are too serious. Yes. And they get battered. What do you know about a protest movement anyway? I know a lot it's about it. It's a lot human. more than sending your chauffeur in your car back to Buckingham Palace. You're just a snob about it. The only way You're to a make... fake. Thompson's thesis, such as it is, is that there was a genuine counterculture, maybe even revolutionary spirit in the 60s that was extinguished. From the vantage point of 2020, if you say that, it sounds almost like received wisdom. Putting aside the quality of Thompson's prose and the sincerity of his feeling, how much do you agree with the idea? Well, I don't think there's exactly a neat answer to the question. Um, you know, I'll go with my slightly awkward double-edged sword metaphor from before. I do think there were things about the 1960s that were genuinely revolutionary and transgressive. Um, the 1960s gave us all kinds of wonderful things in art and culture and politics. But there was also a conservative character to some of the counterculture that I don't think people realized at the time or even intended. And there's a passage actually that came to mind, uh, which a, a listener recently reminded me of, a listener who emailed me, who shares my name actually, emailed me a passage from uh, a book by the political theorist Richard Rorty, a book called Achieving Our Country, Leftist Thought in 20th Century America. And um, this is just a quote, I think, from one of the footnotes, but it gets at many of these themes we've discussed, albeit in a, in a pretty jaundiced way, which in my experience is kind of Rorty's style. Um, but there's certainly a grain of truth here. He writes, historians who like to pick out the exact moment of metamorphosis should consider the account by one of the Berkeley protesters reminiscing in the documentary Berkeley in the 60s of what happened on the day after the students had been prevented by troops mounted on armored personnel carriers from closing down the induction center in Oakland. The students, having no better idea of what to do the next day, returned to the center, now closed for the weekend, sat down in the street, and began to sing. At a certain point, their song changed from Solidarity Forever to We All Live in a Yellow Submarine. That may have been the moment at which an activist political left began to be replaced by a spectatorial cultural left. So admittedly, that is a pretty black and white kind of take on the 1960s from Richard Rorty, but it gets at something very real, which is that the kind of ethos of individual fulfillment and kind of culture as protest that came out of the 1960s could be very conservative in its implications. There's such an obvious difference in this scene he describes between students protesting the Vietnam War by actually trying to protest and close down an induction center in Oakland, you know, compared to uh, showing up later when the center is actually not even operating and just conveying whatever sentiments contained within the phrase, we all live in a yellow submarine. And, you know, evocatively, I don't know, it's it sounds kind of apocryphal, but it's very, you know, it's illustrative nonetheless, switching from solidarity, solidarity forever, you know, to yellow submarine. And it's something we've got to be on guard against today, as there's a kind of resurgent left. And it's now kind of once again, possible to be sort of culturally on the left. You know, today, I think part of the equivalent to this is just kind of a, you know, posting 
or even some of the things that, you know, non-self-described leftists do, you know, that I think are, you know, fairly common among liberals, like kind of online cancel campaigns and things like that, or kind of these, you know, moral panics that are started about podcasts or, or whatever. In the internet age in particular, it can be increasingly difficult for people to distinguish between what is or isn't activism. And now everybody's kind of an activist because everybody is in the business of putting out press releases on the internet all the time about, you know, what, what, here's what the house thinks about this latest, you know, news event or whatever. Yeah. I I just want to say that I have this podcast and also a very strong personal brand. So I think my activist credentials cannot be challenged. Excuse me. I happen to teach a course at Columbia called TV, media and culture. (laughs) So because we were a little bit disappointed in the movie, but uh, it was such a pleasure to revisit Hunter Thompson's prose, we wanted to sign this one off by just reading a little bit more from the book. And I think Will and I are going to trade paragraphs. We just kind of chose a random passage from the beginning of the book, which I think almost better than any other part, conveys the movement and the momentum of the prose, which makes them so much fun to read. We were somewhere around Barstow, on the edge of the desert, when the drugs began to take hold. I remember saying something like, I feel a bit lightheaded, maybe you should drive, and suddenly there was a terrible roar all around us and the sky was full of what looked like huge bats, all swooping and screeching and driving around the car, which was going about a hundred miles an hour with the top down to Las Vegas. And a voice was screaming, Holy Jesus, what are these goddamn animals? Then it was quiet again. My attorney had taken his shirt off and was pouring beer on his chest to facilitate the tanning process. What the hell are you yelling about, he muttered, staring up at the sun with his eyes closed and covered with wraparound Spanish sunglasses. Never mind, I said. It's your turn to drive. I hit the brakes and aimed the great red shark toward the shoulder of the highway. No point mentioning those bats, I thought. The poor bastard will see them soon enough. It was almost noon and we still had more than a hundred miles to go. They would be tough miles. Very soon I knew we would both be completely twisted, but there was no going back and no time to rest. We would have to ride it out. Press registration for the fabulous Mint 400 was already underway, and we had to get there by four to claim our soundproof suite. A fashionable sporting magazine in New York had taken care of the reservations, along with this huge red Chevy convertible we just rented off a lot on the Sunset Strip. And I was, after all, a professional journalist, so I had an obligation to cover the story for good or for ill. The sporting editors had given me $300 in cash, most of which was already spent on extremely dangerous drugs. The trunk of the car looked like a mobile police narcotics lab. We had two bags of grass, 75 pellets of mescaline, five sheets of high-powdered blotter acid, a salt shaker half full of cocaine, and a whole galaxy of multicolored uppers, downers, screamers, laughers, and also a quart of tequila, a quart of rum, a case of Budweiser, a pint of raw ether, and two dozen amyls. All this had been rounded up the night before in a frenzy of high-speed driving all over Los Angeles County. From Topanga to Watts, we picked up everything we could get our hands on. Not that we needed all that for the trip, but once you get locked into a serious drug collection, the tendency is to push it as far as you can. The only thing that really worried me was the ether. There is nothing in the world more helpless and irresponsible and depraved than a man in the depths of an ether binge. And I knew we'd get into that rotten stuff pretty soon, probably at the next gas station. We had sampled almost everything else, and now, yes, it was time for a long snort of ether, and then do the next hundred miles in a horrible, slobbering sort of spastic stupor. The only way to keep alert on ether is to do up a lot of ammos. 
Not all at once, but steadily, just enough to maintain the focus at 90 miles an hour through Barstow. Man, this is the way to travel, said my attorney. He leaned over to turn the volume up on the radio, humming along with the rhythm section and kind of moaning the words. One toke over the line, sweet Jesus, one toke over the line. One toke, you poor fool. Wait till you see those goddamn bats. I could barely hear the radio, slumped over on the far side of the seat, grappling with a tape recorder, turned all the way up on sympathy for the devil. That was the only tape we had, so we played it constantly, over and over, as a kind of demented counterpoint to the radio, and also to maintain our rhythm on the road. A constant speed is good for gas mileage, and for some reason that seemed important at the time. Indeed, on a trip like this, one must be careful about gas consumption. Avoid those quick bursts of acceleration that drag blood to the back of the brain. (laughs) 